Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, featuring the father of the health savings accounts, John Goodman. John is the president of the Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research, and he spoke to the Leadership Institute about the American healthcare system and how it stacks up to others in the world. This speech was recorded live in February 2005 at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. So get some honey on your bagel and take a sip of your mocha, because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. If you're not um, familiar with the National Center for Policy Analysis, uh, you should be. Uh, some of our ideas are much better known than we are, and they include the health savings account and the Roth IRA. And also, a little known fact is that the, the core tax ideas in the Contract with America came from a proposal that we put together with the Chamber of Commerce back in, uh, in 1991. But most importantly, you have in front of you a sign-up sheet for Daily Policy Digest, which is a morning email that we send out that summarizes public policy research every business day, uh, all think tank reports, uh, uh, new public policy information that appears in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, other places. And it's just an invaluable resource for people who are interested in, in public policy. Okay, let's move to, uh, to national health insurance. In the, uh, in the United States, we, um, we have a free health care program called Medicaid for low-income people. And for children who don't qualify for that uh, or near poor, we have the SCHIP program run in all 50 states. And yet, despite the existence of these free health care programs, there are about 13 million people that are estimated to qualify, in theory, for these programs, but do not sign up. So all they have to do, all the parents have to do, is sign a few, uh, few pieces of paper, and, uh, and they can enroll in a health insurance program that's worth, let's say, four or $5,000 a year, but they don't do it. And so one of the questions that's interesting to health economists is, well, why not? And I think that you could appreciate why not if you came with me to Dallas, Texas, to the emergency room of Parkland Hospital where the uninsured patients and the Medicaid patients come through the same emergency room door. They see the same doctors, they see the same nurses, they get the same care. If they're admitted into the uh, hospital, they're in the same rooms. The doctors and nurses do not get paid more or less whether someone's insured or not insured. Um, the only people, in fact, who care who's in Medicaid and who's not are the hospital administrators. And they, in fact, have paid employees who go through the emergency room ward and try to sign up people for Medicaid right there. And more than half the time, they fail. Uh, then, after people are admitted to the hospital, they go room by room and try again. And even then, they are not always successful. Now, Children's Medical Center right next door to Parkland, uh, we have a, a similar uh, series of events. The 
the uninsured children, the Medicaid children, the S-CHIP children, again, all come through the same emergency room door. They all get the same care, regardless of whether they're insured or not. So from the point of the patient, there's no reason to sign up for these programs since care is, is available. Now, health care may not be the same in every city, but at least in Dallas, it's very clear to me why people don't have an incentive to, uh, to sign up for these free government health care programs. Now, uh, the idea of getting free care at emergency rooms is uh, its an inefficient way, by the way, to deliver health care, but it happens all over the world. Uh, thousands of people go to emergency rooms for their health care in Toronto and in London. Now, if you were to ask the, um, the, the head of a hospital in Toronto, what's the difference between the way things work in Toronto and the way things work in Dallas? He would probably say to you, well, in Toronto, people have a right to health care, uh, where in Dallas, they don't. Even though in Dallas, they're probably getting better health care. And by that, I mean that if you went to the emergency room in Dallas, you had a migraine headache, uh, you might get an MRI scan, whereas that would never happen in Toronto and never happen in London. <coughs> now, if you were to ask the head of Parkland Hospital, what does he think is the difference between Dallas and Canada and London? He would say the same thing. He would say, well, in Canada and Britain, people have a right to health care, whereas here in Dallas, they don't, even though they're probably getting better health care. So that's the first myth I want to start with uh, this morning, and it is the idea that, that other countries have made health insurance a right. In fact, if you are a citizen of Canada, you don't have a right to any particular type of health care. You don't have a right to an MRI scan. You don't have a right uh, to heart surgery. You don't even have a right to a place in line. If you're the 100th person waiting for heart surgery, you don't have a right to the 100th surgery. Uh, other people can and do get ahead of you. And in fact, there's a certain sense in which even Americans have more rights in Canada than Canadians do. Because you and I can go to Canada and pay money out of pocket for hospital services, and when we do that, they tend to put us at the head of the queue. So we can do something that's illegal for Canadians to do. They cannot pay money for services delivered at a hospital. So there's a sense in which we have more rights than they do, and in fact, not so long ago, some Canadian hospitals were actually advertising for American patients to come to Canada because that was money into, into their budget. There's also a certain sense in which pets have more rights in Canada than their owners. Um, a Canadian citizen, in theory, can't buy an MRI scan for himself. That's illegal. That's supposed to be provided for free by the state. But, uh, but you can buy an MRI scan uh, for your dog or for your cat. And I wrote about this in the New York Times about 10 years ago, and the head of the Canadian Medical Association wrote back and said, well, Goodman is implying that our system is going to the dogs. <laughs> so I wrote back and said, no, he's got it wrong. I says, uh, what I'm saying is if you're in Canada and you need a brain scan, you may be better off if you're a dog. <laughs> All right. And... Uh, <clears throat> In Britain right now, there are a million people waiting to, uh, to get into hospitals, and I'm indebted to Britain for actually keeping records on this and publishing them periodically. Most, most countries don't want to know how many people are waiting, and they certainly don't keep the statistics. The Canadian numbers are from the Fraser Institute in Canada. The New Zealand number is from uh, the, the New Zealand government. Uh, just to put this in perspective, the number of people waiting in these countries is about 1 to 2 percent of the entire population. That may sound small, but only about 15% of the people go into a hospital every year. So for a country like New Zealand, that implies that for every five people who go into a hospital, one person is waiting, uh, and that's quite a lot. Many of these people wait for months, some wait for years. Uh, many are waiting in pain, some are risking their lives uh, by waiting. 
these are the numbers from Canada, and they're by specialty. And what they show you is uh, that there's no market going on here. So a market would tend to move resources out of the areas where the waiting lists are short and into the areas where the waiting is, is long. But this is no market mechanism. There's no way to make sure that those who need care get it first or make sure that the resources go to the areas uh, where, the, where the need is greatest. Now, the second myth is the idea that uh, these systems deliver very high-quality health care. The British Prime Ministers of Health used to tell their citizens uh, for decades, they don't say it much anymore, but they used to say that the British National Health Service is the, is the enemy of the world, and Canadian Ministers of Health have been known to say much the same thing. In fact, in Britain and Canada, doctors have to see about 50% more patients than American doctors see. And as a consequence of that, they have less time to spend with each patient. So a British general practitioner, for example, barely has time to take your temperature and write a prescription, and, uh, and that's about it. It's got to go on to the next patient. Now, if there is something seriously wrong with you, it turns out that in Britain and in Canada, there's less, less, less equipment, less technology. Um, the uh, renal dialysis rate, for, for example, in the United States is twice the rate in Canada, three times the rate in Britain. Interestingly, in the 1970s, Britain invented, along with the United States, the process of renal dialysis, which, of course, keeps kidney patients alive, whereas in the previous era, uh, uh, it, was, it was certain death. And yet, even today, Britain has one of the lowest dialysis rates in all of, of Europe. Uh, interestingly, Britain invented the CAT scanner in the 1970s, and for a while it was exporting over half of all the CAT scanners in the whole world, probably with government subsidies. But it refused to buy, buy very many of these for, the, uh, for its own citizens, for its own National Health Service. And even today, um, the uh, uh, number of CAT scanners in Britain is about half the level per capita in the United States, and similarly for MRI scanners. And I don't have the, the newest technology here, PET scans, on, on the slide, but in the United States right now, there are 1,000 PET scanners. Canada has two. So if you think the Canadians are getting the same level of care that we are, you have to think, you have to conclude that the PET scan is, uh, is not very useful. Well, the third myth I want to draw to your attention is the idea that these countries have made health care available on the basis of need rather than ability to pay. It's, it's certainly true that that was their intent, but in New Zealand today, despite the fact that health care is freely available, available from the government, one-third of the population has purchased private health insurance again, covering services that are theoretically available for free. In Australia, it's uh, one-third of the population has purchased private insurance. In Britain, seven million people have private insurance, and millions more go to see doctors on an out-of-pocket basis, uh, the rule being that if it's serious, you go private. If it's not, you stay in the, in, in the public system. Another myth is the idea that in the United States, we spend more on health care, but we don't get more, and you've probably heard this. Uh, the left repeats this uh, myth uh, all, all the time. And what is the evidence that we don't get more? Well, they say that um, we know we spend more, but what's the evidence we don't get more? Well, they say life expectancy is about the same among all developed countries, and our infant mortality rate is actually a little higher than other developed countries. But it turns out that these life expectancy statistics don't have very much to do with health care. Now, here is life expectancy for various ethnic groups in the United States, and it varies from uh, life expectancy at birth for an African-American male at 68 years up to... 81 years for Asian Americans and everybody else is in between. Nobody in healthcare thinks that these differences are due to the amount of healthcare services that people get over their lives. And similarly, here are the differences of rates among females. Uh, again, they're all over the map. We don't really understand 
uh, why these, uh, the, these radical differences among these groups. We're pretty confident it's not due to differences in health care they receive. And then again, uh, the health outcomes in countries are very, very uh, uh, affected by lifestyle, environment. Um, uh, we have an obesity epidemic in the United States, which you can verify simply by going on the sidewalk and watching all the obese people walking along. Um, uh, I'm amazed by it myself, and, um, and let's be frank, obesity leads to other health care problems. We have higher uh, teenage pregnancy rates in the United States, that leads to more health care problems. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. None of this has very much to do with our healthcare system. If we're going to compare healthcare systems, uh, you really need to focus on those diseases and conditions where medical science really can make a real difference. And one of them, for example, is breast cancer. Now, it turns out that in the United States, among women uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, only one in four die, uh, compared to one in three in Britain and Germany, and one in two in uh, New Zealand and, 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 and Britain. And for males that are diagnosed with prostate cancer, about one in Five uh, die in the United States compared to one in four in Canada, about one in two in France, and more than one in two in the United Kingdom. So those are, those are comparisons that are far more meaningful because those are areas where with the latest drugs and the latest diagnostic equipment, you really can save, uh, save lives. Um, if we fall down, it is in comparing the health outcomes for low-income people and uh, higher-income people uh, in this country. Uh, we do worse on that scale than other countries do, but you got to remember these countries we're comparing ourselves to are far more homogeneous. We're a very heterogeneous society, and that heterogeneity is affecting uh, differences that you're looking at on that slide. Now, then there's the issue of equality, and, and I've got to tell you, if you didn't already suspect, that of all the reasons there are for letting government take over the healthcare system, this is reason number one. And um, Back when the National Health Service was started in Britain, uh, the most persuasive argument was that in healthcare everyone should be alike, that everyone should have equal access to healthcare regardless of, of rank, regardless of income, regardless of location, and so forth. So that's what the Brits set out to do. It's also what the Canadians set out to do in most other developed countries. And, um, and this was done about 50 years ago, and they went along about 30 years until we get to about 1980. And someone said, well, look, maybe we should actually go out and do a study to see how well we're doing at making healthcare uh, equal to everyone. And so they formed a commission called the Black Commission. And they collected more evidence than had ever been collected before. And they evaluated it. And they announced their findings. And they said, well, we have a very disappointing uh, conclusion uh, to, uh, to announce. And they said, not only have we not achieved the goal of making healthcare equal to everyone, but it appears to us that things are more unequal in Britain today than they were 30 years ago when we established the, the British National Health Service. Well, of course, uh, everyone was disappointed uh, in this finding. They deplored the results. Everyone uh, uh, committed to do a better job and, and show more resolve in, in achieving the goal of quality access to healthcare. 
So then we wait 10 more years and we have another commission, I believe it's called the Atchison Commission, and uh, it did the same thing. We collected all the data and published report, and, and guess what? Uh, again, very, very disappointing news. Uh, the Ash Atchison Commission said, well, not only have things, uh, uh, not only have we not got equality of access to healthcare in Britain today, but it appears that things are even worse than they were back when the Black Commission report, uh, reported. So here we are now, 15 years later, we're way overdue for getting another report, and we all kind of know what it would say if, if, if there would be such a report, uh, but it's always nice to have one's, uh, uh, one's suspicions confirmed. Um, in fact, there are inequalities throughout the developed world. Um, these numbers are from Canada, and it's an interesting study because what happens in health regions is that people cross borders and people go from rural areas to cities, and so so you're never quite sure when you're looking at, at numbers about healthcare consumption uh, about what it's really telling you, but these Canadian researchers actually were able to track where people lived and how much healthcare they got and say very precisely uh, uh, what the per capita differences were, and they were, they were huge. There are four, five, six, seven to one differences among the 30 or so health regions of British Columbia uh, among the, the, the different medical specialties. I think most health economists would say, look, you'd probably find the same thing all over the, the developed world if you actually had the evidence. Very rarely uh, is it uh, in the interest of government to collect the numbers that would allow you to, to know these things. Then we often hear that the American health care system is inefficient, and it's certainly true that uh, third-party insurance uh, piles paperwork on doctors and, and on hospitals, but, but basically the best, um, the best statistic for... Uh, uh, for hospital um, uh, efficiency is length of stay, and I thought I had the number up here, but, but I'll tell you that the United States has the lowest average length of stay in hospitals among all countries, which means that we get people in and out of hospitals quicker than other countries do. And, uh, uh, and that is perhaps the best overall measure of efficiency. But just in terms of how hospitals are run, we not only are setting the standard for the rest of the world, our hospital uh, management companies are exporting their expertise all around the world. This is a very, very interesting uh, slide that, that you're looking at right here. Now, in Britain, remember, there are one million people at any one time waiting to get into British hospitals. And yet, 15% of the beds are empty. And another 15% of the beds are being uh, filled by chronic patients who really don't need to be in the hospital, and they're just using the hospital as an expensive nursing home. So effectively, one out of every three beds is closed off to the acute uh, care, care, care patients. Now, in the United States, we would have probably more empty beds, but we don't have a million people waiting to get in. Not long ago, a group of researchers compared the Kaiser uh, HMO plan out in California with the British National Health Service. They concluded that the two systems, once you make all the appropriate adjustments, are really spending about the same amount of money per person. But in the Kaiser plan, people get more services, and in particular, they're getting to see more specialists, and here are some examples of that. The implication here of this study is that the Brits would do a lot better if they would just contract everything out to Kaiser. They could, uh, they could have you know, American medicine at British prices, but even the Tory party isn't uh, suggesting something as, as radical as that. Then there's the idea that, uh, uh, that under national health insurance you don't have discrimination. We do have a problem with racial discrimination in this country, and it shows up in our health statistics. Uh, but guess what? So does every other country. So in Canada, it would be the Cree and the Inuits, in New Zealand, the Maoris, in Australia, the Aborigines, in all these countries, a minority population 
has shorter life expectancy, higher infant mortality, more health problems, fewer health care resources. So, so it, it is a problem uh, worldwide. Um, of special interest to me is, uh, is the elderly population. And, um, and that's because when there is rationing, and, and this is true in every country, and it's also true in this country, when people have to make rationing decisions, the elderly tend to get pushed to the end of, of, of the waiting line. And so when they do the international surveys, we find that our senior citizens report that they have, it's easier to see doctors, easier to see specialists, less waiting than, uh, than seniors polled in, in other countries. So, so that's probably the, if you have a rationing problem, look to the seniors to see the, uh, the, the worst effects of it. Uh, then there is the idea that costs are out of control in the United States, and, but that they're under control in other countries. You hear this all the time. It is true that we spend more per person on health care than any country in the world. And that much is true. But it's also true that over the last 40 years, our rate of increase in health care uh, costs has been about the same uh, as, as the average for all developed countries. So yes, we're at a higher level, but we're all growing about uh, about the same rate. The only exception on this graph is Canada. Canada is an outlier. Uh, I think, though, the, the Canadians have paid a real price in terms of lack of access to the kind of sophisticated care uh, that most of you have access to because you live in this country. Then there is uh, the myth that uh, in countries where government is making decisions, that decisions are based on, 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 on medical need and, and not based on some other priority like uh, ability to pay. Well, here are a few numbers from, from Britain. Now remember again, at any one time, there are millions million people waiting to get into British hospitals. The World Health Organization says 25,000 British cancer patients die every year because they don't get optimal drug therapy that's available, for example, to people in the United States. So you have the cancer patients dying, you have all those people waiting, and, and look at where some of the ways in which the health service spends its money. There are every year 15, uh, 15 million ambulance rides. It's one ambulance ride for every uh, three people in the country. The British Ambulance Service, in effect, serves as a free taxi service, taking, for example, senior citizens to the pharmacy to get a, a prescription filled. Well, that's nice. It's a, a convenient service, but um, uh, but it's it's a service that that is providing that is somewhat trivial in comparison to the life-saving services that are not being uh, available to people who are in critical condition. And compared to the United States, uh, the British uh, provide many many other services uh, to the uh, to the apparently healthy or to the uh, uh, only marginally ill uh, in compared to, uh, to what we do here. But they skimp on the, on the high-tech uh, equipment. And the final myth I want to draw to your attention is this, and, and by way of background I want to say that uh, when we wrote the book, Lives at Risk, uh, where you can find all, all these statistics and many more, um, we observed at the end of the day that we were getting almost all our information from, not from critics, of natural health insurance, but from people who believe in it. was almost all the numbers that you have seen, almost all the slides you've seen uh, this morning, but they didn't come from right-wing critics of, of, of government-controlled health care. They came from government reports, they came from, from academic researchers, uh, they came from newspaper investigations, they came from people who fully believe in socialized medicine. And um, uh, they may criticize parts of the system, but they are believers in the idea. And you might ask, well, how can that be? Well, the answer is because they believe that the problems of these systems can be reformed. And they believe that they acknowledge that they're problems. They acknowledge their waiting lists. 
acknowledge people sometimes dying because they don't get the care they need. But what they would say to you is, well, we just need to do a better job of reforming the system. And what we did in our book is we tried to point out that every feature of these systems that we were discussing exists not because there's been some error or some mistake made. It exists because there are inevitable political pressures uh, which, which create these problems. In other words, the, the failures of socialized medicine exist not, not because of some oversight. The failures exist because it couldn't be otherwise. In some ways, it is the failure which allows the system to, to survive and function the, the, way, the way it does. And just by one example, what you see in all these systems is a tendency to over-provide the healthy people and under-provide the sick. That, that's what the Brits are doing with their ambulance service, but not very many CAT scans. They're over-providing to the healthy and under-providing the sick. Well, what is the reason for that? The answer is political pressure. In a typical health care plan in the United States, uh, a Blue Cross health care plan, for example, you would find that maybe 4% of the enrollees in any given year spend half the money. But if you're a politician and you're allocating scarce dollars in a health care budget, you can't afford to spend half your budget on 4% of the voters. 4% is probably too sick to even come vote for you anyway. Uh, uh, but in any event, the political pressures inevitably uh, cause these people to want to underprovide the sick and overprovide the healthy. Or hospital management. Uh, what explains the empty beds? What explains the, so many chronic patients and beds that, that ought to be available to the acute care patient? Well, again, if you're a hospital manager in one of these countries and you have a global budget and you're strapped for cash, uh, it doesn't take very long before you realize that the cheapest bed is an empty bed. And the next cheapest bed is a bed that's occupied by a patient that doesn't need very many of the hospital services, only needs the hotel services of the hospital. The really expensive patient is that patient outside who's trying to get in. That's the one that's going to cost a lot of money. So it's not an accident that hospitals are run the way they are. It is, again, the natural consequence of the way the system is set up. And one final example I'll give you. There have been many, many complaints through the years and many scandalous stories in, 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 in the media in Canada, New Zealand, Britain, and other countries about ministers of health, ministers of parliament, wealthy people who jumped the queue. And there was a story not long ago from, from Canada about a guy who got his MRI scan in just a few days while everybody else was waiting three months. Um, and, and it's been going on uh, for, uh, for as long as these systems have been in existence. So one question is, well, why does this happen? Why, if, if they believe so much in equality, why don't the rich and the powerful wait in line with everybody else? And my answer is, well, because the system wouldn't survive if they did that. What makes the system work is that people who have the power to change it have found out how to make it work for them. So if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're influential, you find out how to get to the head of the waiting line. You find out how to get your health care. Now, if that were not the case, if the rich and the, and the powerful had to wait in line with everybody else, these systems wouldn't last for a week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings.
Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.